This is a 38 Madison production. But I need a number, dog. Your largest month in madness history. You could ballpark it. Just just to, just so just so everyone can understand the magnitude of what you guys were accomplishing. Average day better than 10 grand every day, I would say. 10 grand a day, 30 every days. Day, every day better than that on the average. The weekend's going to be probably twice that. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let people add that up on their own. They can add that. I'm not going to add that up for you. The numbers don't lie. Brother, can I shake your hand? Well done. Thank you, man. I want y'all to make some noise, kitty yo. One more time. So uh, I love you so much. Oh, you're spoiling me now. You're spoiling me, y'all. I want to start off easy. Welcome to Homegrown. It's going to be a podcast and an experience that's going to let you guys get your eyes, ears, and your hearts delving into D.C. Washingtonian culture. Now, the thing most people think about when they think about D.C. or Washingtonians is go-go. It is our lifeblood. Absolutely. <laughs> can never walk away from that. It is what it is. It is who we are. It is our pulse of who we are. But we're bigger than that. And we've always been bigger than that. And I brought some amazing people who are holders of the torch of D.C. Washingtonian culture. I want them to introduce themselves and tell their story after I tell mine. Mine starts this way. I was born and raised in northeast Washington, D.C., six blocks from the Capitol. Yup, I'm from Capitol Hill. I've seen it all. So on my block, there was a family on Section 8 and my neighbor to the right was a photographer from the Post. So I've seen every side of D.C. you can imagine seeing. I actually went to high school here. I'm a D.C. public school. I went to Banneker High. And then I took my talents across the street to, <laughs> to Howard University. So I've been here the entire duration. And I've watched things and I've observed things. And I think some conversations need to be had, but they need to be had right the, amongst the right people. And I think I brought the right people to, to have these conversations. The first person I'd like to introduce you guys to is Larry from the famous the famous trail-breaking company known as Universal Madness. Thank you, Larry, for coming. We appreciate you, bro. Thank you for having me, Aaron. Please, man, tell everybody about your history, about where you're coming from in D.C., where you're born and raised, and how you and your team decided that madness, Universal Madness, needed to happen as a clothing line in D.C. Okay, I grew up in uh, the lower part of uh, northwest D.C., down by um, what you would call... Um, Dunbar High School okay. on 4th and N Street, Northwest. Um, I grew up in the Boys and Girls Club, number two, which was on 3rd and K. Jabbo Kenner, Mr. Bill Butler, who sent like uh, five, 600 kids to college in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think I started going there at about age eight, nine years old. Playing, started off playing football, then basketball, and we transitioned to early sport. The club was unique because um, those guys were Kenner and Butler and those guys, they were trailblazers. They 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 groomed or mentored guys like uh, Willie Woods, Hall of Fame football player, Coach John Thompson, Elgin Bell, a Hall of Fame basketball player, David Bean, um, 
mayor of Detroit, but also Spangarn High School, mm. uh, Hall of Famer, Syracuse. So I was fortunate, I guess, to come up through the Boys and Girls Club to be able to see these type of individuals. Um, all the coaches would come through looking for talent. So I was able to, uh, through playing basketball, me and Baby Doran, we played together mm. from probably eight, nine years old till like 15, 14 years old. So we were able to go to college and we could have went to St. Anthony's, but we ended up going to, I ended up going to Cardoza, he went to Dunbar. But just seeing kids and guys come up through the club mm -hmm. and being able to have somebody to take interest in you and give you an opportunity and a chance at ed education, I was um, probably saved and mentored through the club. That's beautiful. Yeah. So t tell us how, how Universal Madness started. I mean, it literally was a nuclear bomb for D.C. culture. Yeah, well, um, Universal Madness started. At first, we were um, Universal Beauty and Barber Supply. Did so, not know that. Yeah, so we were servicing all the hair salons back in the day, trying to uh, get our niche in the hair industry. Okay. And um, it basically started off with really... One T-shirt. We, we were still doing little parties and little go-go's, and we were definitely frequenting the go-go's pretty much every night. Mm -hmm. So we came up with the first uh, T-shirt, which was Summer Madness, and that was the multicolored triangle, which is the logo. And um, first we maybe started off with two or three dozen T-shirts, took them to the go-go, sold them that night, went to the next go-go the next day with 10 dozen, sold them out that night. Next night, we went to another go-go with 20,000, sort of like that, you know. Within the course of 30 days, our goal was, we didn't know it, but we said we ended up getting like 100 dozen T-shirts, 1,200 shirts. But that was our goal. We needed to get that 100 dozen because they selling, we selling out too fast. Right. But 100 dozen turned into 200, 400, 500 dozen. Just one T-shirt design because guys would buy a shirt going in, sweat it out. And buy one coming out. out. You know what I'm saying? I love that. So then we was a block down from the black hole. So that's the same thing. Every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we got a big group of kids, five, six hundred kids, buying something going in. We stay open late. They buy something coming out. Wow. So we flipped the beauty and bottle supply to the Urban Apparel. Well, yeah. man, let me tell you something. Urban Apparel, first of all, it's literally taking over everything. Most definitely. I mean, from, from you guys all the way up to the heights of, say, a Dapper Dan oh, or Virgil. Oh, yeah. Like, all of that stuff is literally taking over. Yeah, okay. So I just want to take this opportunity to tell you thank you because there's more. There's more oh, I got to oh, unravel with you, more, but, I, yeah, with but we're going to get to that. Yeah. But I also want to talk about our other guest, my friend here, Mustafa. Now, let me tell you the, the beautiful thing about Mustafa. I, I met Mustafa quietly off the Internet where you meet everybody now, right? So you meet him off the Internet, but I need everyone to go follow his Instagram handle, which is DC Decades. It is a beautiful microcosm of all D.C. culture, past and present. Kind of focuses a little more in the past than the present, but it is a great look back. It's almost like our Smithsonian online. So go follow at D.C. Decades. And I want to introduce Mustafa to everyone. And I want people to t I want you to tell people about your journey and where you're headed to, because for what I've seen that you have coming up, you're doing a collaboration with it's unbelievable for someone who's been here their whole life. It's unbelievable. I want you to talk about that as well. But please tell uh, uh, everyone, where, you know, who you are and where you're coming from and your next destination to push D.C. culture. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate you having me. Um, I'm Mustafa Tariq. I'm a native Washingtonian. I was born in 
the Washington Hospital Center in 1971, uh, right around the corner, and uh, grew up in a single-parent household, Mm -hmm. just my mom. Luckily, we had, I always attribute everything to our mayor for life, Mary Berry, Mm -hmm. because when I turned, what, 12 or 13, I I was in the Summer Youth Program automatically. So was I. And, and so we learned a lot, uh, professional, how to be professional, how to do resumes, how to just survive and communicate with people at a young age. Oh, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have technology. We had to read pretty much. So everything I, I learned, it, I took with me as I grew. So when I went to school, we were we had respect automatically for the teachers. We didn't have teachers calling home and saying that uh, your, your child is disrespectful, your child is not listening, or your child is talking too much, or things like that. And then we, we also had the street life at the time. That's how we had our fun, our outlet, but we did our schoolwork, mm. if you can believe that. We actually cut up in the streets but we also made sure we had our homework done. Our mothers thought, or fathers thought, we were angels because we were doing what we were supposed to do at home. Mm. So we would do our schoolwork, get good grades, and cut up in the streets. That's the difference I feel now as far as the youth, and in which is my inspiration to assist the youth as much as I can. It's always going to be inside of me to be able to assist because they. I feel like they just didn't have something we had. Hmm. I mean, we didn't have as much money or anything like that. But they're missing, I feel like the youth is missing that connection and that, that respect level, especially for your elders, hmm. especially for your parents at home. And with that, I feel like if we could somehow, somehow save one or two that are in the leadership position, we can we can change the time. Exactly, change exactly. The time. Because they they when you when you talk to a youngster, uh, you know, in that in that age group, you can tell that they need love. Mm. You know, they they need hug. They need encouragement because they don't feel like they have any hope. Because it's not coming out of the home like it used to. And we don't have, I, I don't feel that like we have those leaders that were actually foot on the ground making sure, like Mayor Barry, like some others I know, like Larry sitting here. Well, you know, you, you brought up something really mm-hmm. great when you spoke about how, you, you know, an angel at home and something totally different, mm-hmm. maybe outside. of it. And I think every teen is. Mm-hmm. We put our best foot forward with mm-hmm. parents and our better foot forward mm-hmm. with grandparents. But but uh, we put our best foot forward. But one of the things that that's alluring to a young Washingtonian is the night. Mm-hmm. And what absolutely owned the night was Go-Go. Mm-hmm. DC Go-Go owned the night. Like, we prepared all day for the night. Um, as embarrassing as this will sound, because Hattie Mae was, Hattie Mae Waller was a very interesting lady. I didn't go to a go-go till I was a full-grown mm-hmm. adult. Mm-hmm. But I got tapes, and my cousins would go, and they would tell me about it. So I didn't go. But I wanted to find out some of you guys' early experiences with go-go. My, my earliest experiences literally are just only through the music, mm-hmm. not from the fellowship of physically going to a go-go. So can you tell me about your first couple of experiences at a go-go and what it felt like and the energy you felt? Well, I grew up uptown. 
the upper part, Brightwood, Tacoma area, by Calvin Coolidge. I know you're talking about. I went to Calvin. I went to three different high schools. I went to Theodore Roosevelt. Right. Went to uh, Archbishop Carroll for a year. Both in Petworth. <laughs> and then I graduated going. from Calvin Coolidge. Okay. <laughs> so, and that's another story. <laughs> but we weren't old enough at the time. We wanted to go to certain go-go's across town. We wanted to go to the Coliseum, if any if Anyone remembers that remember uh, we couldn't get in, uh, and it was a couple of other places, uh, Southeast Cherries, a couple of other places that we, you know, we just couldn't get in at the time. But our home was the Black Hole, the Celebrity Hall, so Celebrity hall. we could get in there. We knew we knew security, we knew people, so we could get in there at a young age. So I was going to the Go Go. I was going to the Black Hole at 14, 15 wow. years old, and we would walk. We would walk from from up where I lived near First and Kennedy Street. All the way down, down the hill. Down to Morton Street. So we cut down Rock Creek Church Road and walked straight down Georgia Avenue. <laughs> but it was nothing. It was nothing. <laughs> and then we nothing. knew what kind of fun we were going to have. That's true. And as, a, uh, as a young person, mm-hmm. walking doesn't look daunting at all, at all right? As an adult, you like— didn't like, think twice about it. Like, eight blocks. <laughs> as an adult, we you're like, hey, can we Uber there? Yeah. Like, like, as a kid, you don't mind the walk. What about you, Larry? Is it your first early go-go experience is like the nightlife. Okay, I'm a teen— what does the world look like outside of my parents' home? I think the first go-go I went to was probably um, probably Wilson Line at Boat Ride. We were probably like 11, 12 years old. Same thing. We'd walk straight down 7th Street. We'd leave, probably leave Handover Place and just make our way down to just get on 7th Street. You know, if you go around 7th Street, you're going to run straight into the boat. Yep. So you get on the, go down to the Wilson Liner. Now, we 11, 12. Some of the guys might be a little 13, 14. But we don't have no ticket, no money, no nothing. We wait for that boat, boat get ready to take off. Then everybody just jump on. <laughs> And Chuck knew us from like, you know, he he knew us from way back then. Mm -hmm. Most of the older guys he knew us so because they had another place called Presidential Arms on 13th and G. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, it used to be right next door to this place called a university shop. And we would scale the wall and the older guys would pull you up into the go-go. Wow. So they would hang out. Yep. Somebody would grab you down, pull pull you you in. Same thing with the Masonic Temple. You can scale the wall, they pull you up, pull you in. Same thing with Cadoza High School football games. <laughs> by the, uh, right by the um, Wilson Grill, mm-hmm. that wall, we clam that wall, guys pull you up, then you got to clam over the fence. We run across the field to see this amazing guy named Canadius Green, was a quarterback for Dunbar High School. Wow. Who went on, he was the first black quarterback to integrate the Big Ten. Mm. And went out there and played in the Rose Bowl, was the two-time Rose Bowl MVP. And he had the Heisman Trophy uh, running back, two-time Archie Griffin. Wow. He was, but Canadians was the quarterback, and his claim to fame was he would come on the field with the all-white on, and he'd leave the field with the all-white mm. on. Wow. They couldn't touch him, man. Untouched. Yeah, he's an uh, administrator up at... St. Albans right now. Really? We've got an incredible story. That's Played cool. every sport. was all met, all in a high baseball, football, basketball. Wow. You know what, guys? I, um, I have a very dangerous hypothesis that might get me in trouble. I'd like to share it with you. Mm-hmm. I want to check you for weapons. Do you guys have weapons? No. All right. <laughs> all right. Here's my hypothesis. I think go-go is the luckiest genre of all time. Mm-hmm. 
Here's my hypothesis. I know that Go-Go would love to be this global phenomenon like hip hop and every other music thing. But I think the universe is charming Go-Go and saying, nope, I won't let you have that. And the reason why it's doing that is based on the fact that you guys are the most dangerous and powerful of them all. To keep it that way, it has to only stay here. Example, 50 Cent in the club. We all can agree that's a huge record, right? Of course. By show of hands, do you believe that 50 Cent could tour Queens, New York for 35 years? Not the United States. No. Tour his hometown of Queens for 35 years. Let me add more to that. Do multiple shows within the week in front of the same audience for 35 years. It's the only genre that does that is go-go. It is charmed. What other what other genre do is allowed to tune your instruments in front of your audience? What other what what other genre is allowed for no. you to come up there in your work. You can have on your park service uniform, and we don't care. I never thought about. No, you you don't have to have you. We, you don't need some superior marketing. You don't need this great guy that's doing these massive memes for you. You don't even need a good flyer. You just need to play. Win them over playing. All of us have been to a go go early enough to watch them set up in front of us. It's eleven fifty five. It's 1116 and they're setting up in front. The rudest thing ever done in music. And we're all, we're there for it. I never saw Patti LaBelle tune her voice in front of me. Soundcheck. Soundcheck right in front of you. You've been there an hour. And they're sound checking in front of you. Soundcheck is part of the experience. It's part of the experience. Because That's why it's the most blessed yeah. thing. Because the moment they start cranking, mm -hmm. we've forgotten that he has on his mailman uniform. Yeah. But we for, we we for, we've forgotten it's all gone, absolutely. and I think the fact that longer it stays here, the purer it could sound. Because what we do know is once something gets large, corporate money, okay, corporate intentions waters down and dilutes all things, all things. I don't care what it is. It could it could be fried chicken, hair care products. Everything, the moment large money comes into it, meaning they weren't concerned with it. They were only concerned with profit, right? Mm -hmm. It ruins everything. And I want, I want DC and GoGo -Go to understand, keep it here. I know you guys want to go on tour and open up for Celine Dion, but let's look at the math, right? 99% of the, the players in GoGo -Go have full-time jobs, right? So you got a job. You come play music, the thing you love, three and a half, four hours, get an extra $300, $400 a night. You gig out four times a week. That's $1,600. There's no, let's, let's not lie to each other. There's no taxes in that. That's cash. Mm -hmm. And, it, and if, and if you, I, I've lived the cash life. Cash money spends so much different mm -hmm. than check money. Mm -hmm. So much different than check money. So I, I, I kind of wish I could have a conversation with everybody in GoGo -Go and say, no, you don't want to blow up because the moment you blow up, something happens and it's going to fall apart. Look at how they treated EU with the butt. The moment it got big, that's, a, that's been historically with everything, even hip hop, whatever. Oh, once it gets too big, we're all mad. We want it to blow, but we're immediately mad. So that's, that's my 
I mean, that's why I, I want to check you out for weapons because most people do not want to hear Iron's thing like, I don't want Gogo to blow up. I don't want it to blow up. I want it to stay here. I want it to still have his identity and still hold up. Now, when you guys were talking about going to the, like, going to the black hole and stuff like that, the most distinctive thing about going to the black hole, we are looking at what everybody's wearing. First time I ever saw a Gore-Tex sweatsuit, it was not at a prom. It was not at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. It was literally in the streets of D.C. So when you... Let's, let's go back. Let's go back in our memories. We walk into Celebrity Hall. This is pre-Black Hole, so you know what era I'm at. We're at Celebrity Hall. We walk in. What is everyone wearing? So I'll start with you, Larry. What is everybody wearing then? T-shirt, jean shorts, New Balance, Gucci tennis shoes. That's what I think. And maybe the, uh, maybe the bucket, bucket hat. Okay. What about you? The season. Sweatsuits. That's Timberlands, uh, baseball caps, bucket hats, uh, just sweatshirts with jeans, jean shorts. What year do uh, you think you're doing? You're doing 80? I'm, I'm doing um, 80s, 80s, late 86 through. I, I attended my last go go at the Celebrity Hall probably in 91. So 86 through 91, it was consistent. That's and the, you had to have one. That's the 996 era, you right? Had, yeah, it, and we started out with the the uh, 995. The 995s was the first pair of New Balance I had in Robo Junior High School. And then we did, we you had to have a little more money to get some 1300s. Um, Th- those are reflected, those are reflected the, ones, the right? New, yeah, well, the, new, the, the 1300s were the, that off bluish the green bluish ones, color. okay. They were the most, they were $130 back then. In 85, yeah, that 86. Was, that was a lot. That's a lot of money in 85, 86. So, we can go, we, can go, we I could go forever on New Balance. Um, but yeah, so, but we had so many variety. We had so much to choose from. Uh, New Balance was just, we just, that was just that was normal for us. But if you came in the go-go and you were the first one that had on some Elise or some Fila, the cream fila, some uh, Gucci's, or you know, we we just had choices. Some heads. We had so many tennis shoes, and, and they had to be fresh. So Brand if you go in the go go, and you had some white tennis shoes on, they got to be white, white. If you had white tennis shoes on, you had, and you got a scuff on your tennis shoes, you had to go get some more. Or you gonna get fried. Oh yeah, away. You gonna get slaughtered. You if you get if you go to school with some dirty tennis shoes, you can't have anything on your tennis shoes. This is how it was. Mm-hmm. So with that fashion, our fashion sense and and just the appreciation for being neat and clean was going on back then. You bring up something both of you actually do that that I find so amazing about DC culture in terms of the fashion and the music, how mm-hmm. they all walk together, mm-hmm. right? And where they were pulling from. So when you listen to Chuck Brown, Chuck Brown's pulling from jazz, mm-hmm. he's pulling from calypso, and of course he's pulling from soul. That's where his original band is. Mm-hmm. Turns and blues. Yeah. DC fashion is pulling from preppy, mountain wear. <laughs> it's pulling, it's pulling, it's pulling from these amazing, like. I'm not looking for a guy from Berry Farms to know mm. where to get the best snorkel coat mm. from at Herman's. You know what mm. I'm saying? It's pre 
We're talking the pre-Georgetown era. Uh, so absolutely. these guys are going to these very, you go back for very important yeah. places to find this stuff. So it's it's not like you're not finding this stuff in Hex. No. You're not finding it in Macy's. Mm. You're going to have to go to Eddie Bauer shop. Mm. You're going to have to go to Bridges Great Outdoors. And we're going to talk about okay. that. <laughs> it goes deeper because I think it, the fashion was passed down from the older guys to the young guys. So you had stores where older gentlemen would go to, like a store called Lewis and Thomas Souls. That's where they had seven, eight hundred thousand dollar. $1,500 suits, and, and you could get your slacks made. Mm-hmm. Back then, a good, uh, expensive pair of slacks would be between 45 and 75 And you had certain individuals, like a guy like a guy named Harvey Cooper, who Chuck Brown would always put in his songs and call him the youngest teenager in the world. He was the most sharpest, immaculately dressed guy in all of D.C., and people knew these certain guys who was really known for their dresses. Like, he would take a regular pair of pants, and he would take the the the, um, the crease and he would get his crease stitched in and then at the bottom of his, his crease he would get a uh, he would get the guy the tailor to make him so they would, would split at the at the end and it would break his shoes they would lay on his sh- dress shoes Whoa. just like that you know what I'm saying and people would watch him and pick up on it or he'd have it on the side he, he would everything that he would do would be different. He would be the best dancer in there. If you ask all the older guys, you say, man, who's the best dancer ever out of D.C.? They're going to say Harvey Cooper. Wow. You know, without a doubt. Who the best dresser? They're going to name Harvey Cooper. They're going to name this guy named Al Monday. Who he was like a, Al Monday was like a superstar. Mm-hmm. Like, you, like you never seen him that much. But whenever you seen him, Ascot, sports coat, blazer, blue blazer, slacks, this, dressed wow. up. But he was a professional Thief. He what? would go all over the world still in the clothes. All over the world. Paris, Italy, blah, blah, blah. Professional. And he would have the, um, he was the first people, person, I would say, who brought the Elise, the Fila, and all that stuff, his little crew, to D.C. in 72, 71. But let me, let me now that you said that, we have to be, certain institutions for fashion, um, just even though they're not here anymore, they 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 were the vanguard for it. Mm-hmm. So we got to speak on Cavaliers. Of course, but that was like, that's the, mm, the Cavaliers, Cavaliers was a Cavaliers was a little under thing, but the Cavaliers yeah, where you got the age. Yeah, it was like the Cavaliers. Like I was in junior high school, and even in junior high school, that was not the lit. Like the I told you, the Presidential Arms. Yeah, they had a store next to it called um, the University Shop. And they had, they sold alligator shoes for 145, 175. It'd take you two, three months to get the 145, 175. Never get them. But, yeah, you might not never get it. But they had some turtle boots for 85. That might take you about maybe a month or however long it's gonna take you. But dudes were doing incredible things to get that money to go mm. get them alligator shoes or them turtle boots. And we was in junior high school trying to get them to go to Dunbar Prom. What? Or Dunbar's, uh, they have dances and stuff like right, that. Right, right. So you wanna get the, like get that. The right so stuff. you can, kid, they think you're in high school if you come in and look kind of shop. Wow. The girls would think you go to Dunbar. You know what An- I'm another one of the youth staples. And I'm gonna piggyback. Oh, no, please piggyback on it first. Piggyback on what Larry was saying. Back then, 
you know how the the youngsters say unk now? Mm-hmm. These were our uncles, these yeah. the older yeah. guys. Yeah. So we yeah. watched them. Yeah. You they didn't even wear jeans. No, definitely not. Jeans was a no no. No, definitely. Jeans were a no no and suits, the alligator skin, mm-hmm. shoes, the suits, the slacks, the coats. Um, sweaters, scarves, hats, sweaters, or sweaters, but they'd be leather on the front and knit on the back, and it cost them maybe probably a hundred plus or a hundred less in that range. But that was a absorbent amount of money. Like but these were the guys who, like you said, they would never wear no tennis shoes or no jeans or no stuff yeah. like that. In the in our generation, we started to wear the sport look yeah. but we saw them when they did dress down they yeah. had on these things yeah. Yeah. so we we yeah. are young it was never dressed down until like in the 80s yeah we are young always dress up yep even like it's a store on the 7th and I 7th like 7th and I that sold really all types of uh, slacks and everybody would break their neck to get there the guy T. Isley who owned the um Fox Trap. He had a man's apparel store, thirteen hundred block of F Street. Larry, you're an encyclopedia. <laughs> no, I'm just saying this is just growing up. Larry, you are an encyclopedia. No, no, but this is growing up. But T. Osby had the Fox Trap, and he had the um, he had another club on Raphael's off Sixteenth Street, Sixteenth mm-hmm. with P. So the Raphael's was for the younger. Uppy, uppy generation. I kind of remember Raphael's a little bit. That that that's what, ringing that a bell. Mansion, that little mansion right on the corner, a 16th and P before mm-hmm. you get to Stair Playground. It was like a smaller mansion, but then the Fox Trap was the big mansion that the uh, the Dorothy Height in them owned. That was the Negro women they owned that, and that's where the judges and the lawyers and the doctors and the more astute. Or if you had money, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, you, you like you just said, money. Let's ugh, let's talk the ugly truth. <laughs> Where are people getting this money from? Because I'm gonna be honest with you, my junior high school and well, middle school and high school years, I was broke. Ninety mm. percent of the stuff I couldn't get. Mm. I just knew it and liked it. I might have gotten one piece. I definitely got a bucket hat. Mm. I got the I got like four cardigans from you guys because I was I I I I wanted to dress like I was I was already in college. Mm. I, I wanted that whole preppy thing. I I bought into the preppy thing early. But where is this money coming from? Like it, it, sixteen years old, some uh, some some thirteen thir- hundreds. We got to We got to We got to say what it was. Now, how many people weren't out in the street? If the if the if the average if let's say one hundred percent of DC youth were doing it were doing or not doing their thing, how many were doing their thing and others just didn't do their thing? I would say that would be probably because I'm clearly in the wasn't doing my thing group. It was under fifty percent, maybe. You kidding me, bro? Maybe forty so percent of. <laughs> Most of our neighborhood were. So let's. I'm, it was I'm gonna, access. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say the words. Okay. You're telling me that over 50 percent of DC youth was hustling in some way, shape, or form at that time. Now it was different. It was different levels, and I'll tell you how that happened. You can't discuss DC culture without the ugly truth, as you mentioned. So how that happened is. The older guys 
that had access to the drugs. Right. Okay. When they hit, they, the way they're, when I think about it, hindsight, of course, I was young then. My brain was not developed. But as I've gotten older and I think about it, hindsight, because of their behavior and how they operated, I knew that they felt like they were putting us in position? a position, a financial, financially stable position. Okay. So it wasn't that they were preying on us. They felt like they were assisting us with they were, they're empowering you with what we what they felt like we needed and to a young guy that wants these nice things mm -hmm. that wants to be able to put food in the refrigerator you spoke on that because you, when you introduced yourself mm -hmm. you immediately said that I I was trying to help exactly it that wasn't was just mindset. about me trying to yeah. dress the best guy I'm going to do that. Exactly. I'm going to do that. But the goal is to help my mother. Yes. So this is how easy this was. If I'm hanging out on the basketball court and it's an older guy, man, you know, hey, you want to do this? I got something for you. I have a package for you. This is how, you know, I've mentioned this before and people are like, well, goodness gracious, are you serious? So just think, this is just me as an individual. So it's like... A hundred other kids my age that this is happening to or can happen to. But, man, I got a package for you. May you go take care of this and you keep that money. Just give me something and you keep the rest and we can keep doing this. Wow. You're handed a package and you are actually told what to do with it. And whatever you can do on your own, whatever you learn on your own, that's on you. But it was no, not money didn't even have to be transferred. You didn't have to buy it. It was handed to you at the time. This is the how much it was in it flooded. Wow. It was flooded. So the guys, the older guys that had it, they got it. They would they had to get it off of their hands. So they knew the best way to do it was with young soldiers. Exactly. And that's how that happened. It, it just, just how it happened. And as you can see what it did to our communities, but it, because, because it got out of control. Out of control. Yeah. But, uh, but the yeah. amount of money mm -hmm. young people had then, it just, and I, I came from a good household, bro. Absolutely. Hattie Mae made good money. Absolutely. It dwarfed. Mm -hmm. in, in in seeing what these people were doing. I, my, my mom, God bless her soul, we used to be in a safe way. She would be so upset with uh, people with two cards of groceries and food stands. She's like, wait a minute, I'm using real money and I can only get one cart of groceries and you got nothing but food stamps and you got three cards of groceries. She would be infuriated. And then, she, then, then she'd look at him and like, wait a minute. Yeah. All your clothes are brand new. How, how are you on food stamps and everything is brand? Like, it would infuriate. We'd be in line. My mom be heated the whole time. Like, God dang, I got, I got, I got a master's degree <laughs> from, from Catholic University. And, 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 and you got three cards of groceries, mm -hmm. all of it, processed food, like tasty cakes, taking up a whole basket and all nine. You're paying with food stamps and all of your kids have on... Fila outfits. How is this working? So 
the the amount of money that was out there was 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 unfathomable. Absolutely, unfathomable. Absolutely. But you know what, Larry? I want to bring you back into the conversation because you were making items that were competing mm-hmm. with the Fila's, the Elise, and all that other stuff. Um, uh, again, guys, I just want to remind everybody what exactly we're doing in the conversation we're having. This is Homegrown, uh, DJ Iron, having an amazing conversation with two uh, DC historians, Larry from The Madness Shop and my friend Mustafa from DC Decades. Um, please follow uh, Mustafa at DC, at DC Decades on Instagram. Great, great follow. I promise you, it's right up there with all the good ones. Uh, it's, 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 it's just absolutely fantastic. But again, Larry, you were, you were making stuff that was actually competing with national brands. And in fact, I did an interview with Russell Simmons. Mm-hmm. Do you know you guys are the catalyst for Fat Farm? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. He said when they came and did a show here and he saw 99% of the crowd in those bucket hats with those those block letters, mm-hmm. he couldn't believe it. And, to, and even after Fat Farm exploded, he couldn't. He still couldn't sell nothing in D.C. Mm-hmm. National brand getting nothing in D.C. All because of your pioneering and those that have followed you after. Right. So I say that to say. So as you, as a creator who's competing with these national, national known brands, and and let's and, and at the, let's be honest, the brands that the D.C. youth like were not common brands. They weren't chasing Nike and Adidas like that. They were tra- chasing the Italian people, Sergio Tacchini, Fila, all the Italian people, stuff like that. So how did that make you feel? And did you know you were you were on pace with them? Yeah, I mean, no, we weren't on pace with them because when we first started going to the shows, they weren't there. Like you just said, they didn't exist. Those, all those companies that you're talking about, they weren't they weren't there. It was just we were the only ones there. And what happened was, I think we we started doing um, high end fashion at first. We're not not doing it, but we were dabbling in it, or maybe more so, really for our own fashion sense and fashion concert. We were fortunate enough to go to um, the PD Wumo in Florence in Milan. So the major fashion shows in Italy and Paris fortunate enough to go to those shows and see just how people move and shake it, how the clothing industry on a high-end fashion was evolving. So we were dabbling in that a little bit. But learning, you know, getting to go to the Johnny Versace main fashion show mm-hmm. in Milan. Let me tell you something. When y'all did the Medusa head, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, they're going somewhere else. I remember that. Yeah, Medusa Head, the Greek Key, and stuff like that. We seen that at the the Versace show when they had Terrence Trent Darby. He played Terrence Trent Darby. That's the first time I heard it before it even came to the states. Wishing well, wishing well was on the runway of maybe the early '80s Versace fashion show. You probably could Google it and it could pop up. But yeah, that's the first time I heard Terrence Trent Darby was in Milan. But I think also you guys started to. Understand textile. Yeah, we're going to because the quality so, of the tea. Oh no, not just going like to y'all the lycra. When y- when y'all using lycra in some of those teas? Uh, yeah, we, what happened was you don't only go to the show; you get to go to the manufacturer mm-hmm. to see the process, or 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 you go. You go sit down. We were going to sit down with Jim Franco Ferrey. We were fortunate enough to sit down with Gianni Versace himself and be with the people who were buying the line, who were the first people to brought the line to the United States. 
who was able to set at the table and be a part of that. Um, uh, Dolce Gabbana, uh, Ferrey, Biblos, Claude Montana, we sat at the table. Jesus. But we would also go to the factories who would make the clothes for them to see how it's made, how the whole process was. It's a learning process. So mm-hmm. there's a company called Isaiah and Grupo. Those were the factories who made the, a lot of the fashion for the major houses. Mm-hmm. So we and so we would talk to them, and they would tell us, well, we're making this for these guys, but this is also our private label line that we do, and this is how it's done, this is how it's made. So we were learning from that, you know, really getting a wealth of knowledge from that perspective. So when we went to Urban Apparel, we started coming, going to the shows at the Javis Center. There was no really black, you know, those companies didn't exist. No FUBU, no Fat Farm, no Sean John. It was one guy. Did black you guys guy. do magic? Hmm? You guys did well, magic? no magic then. It was maybe five, six, seven, eight years after those big shows. Well, they weren't even big shows, but the shows in New York. Then magic came along much later. Okay. Yeah, but we did do all magic shows. What year What year are we talking about? This is like 80? I'm going 80. No, we started, so we stayed 80. Started going to Milan and Florence and stuff like that, maybe like 83, 84. Wait a minute. <laughs> You're in Milan in 83? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Larry, 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 Larry. Trailblazers. That's really, Trailblazers. You, Larry, you <laughs> Eighty-three in Milan. In eighty-three, I am on the carpet of my mom's living room. But like I told you, when I started out with the fashion stuff, just our own. We were 14, 15, 13. That's 72. I'm 64. So you got to, I started maybe like 72 watching the Harvey Coopers and going to the Chuck Brown stuff in the 70s. That's unfathomable, brother. Mm-hmm. 84, you're in Milan. All right. Definitely. I want to go here to... Go over here to Mustafa because Mustafa is going to do something uh, that I'm really excited about. And the funny thing is when I was uh, when me and him would chat online very briefly, I would just talk about stuff that I wish would come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the places that I because I, I was a complete preppy guy even in, in my high school years, I dressed like I worked at a bank. Everything I had was khaki and pink. Like, Cameron ain't got shit on me. All right. So, <laughs> but one of the one so one of the places that I used to frequent was Bridges Great Outdoors. And one of the great things for the street guys, and I, I can only adopt maybe two, three, because I'm no, I'm so not street, but I can only adopt two or three things. And one of them was the Bridges hat with the huge circular. Mm-hmm. Kind of like had a forest thing with the name Bridges mm-hmm. on top of it. Mm-hmm. Please, and we and we spoke on that. Mm-hmm. We spoke on the brilliance of that fitted hat. Please let people know uh, the upcoming collaboration that you guys you have going on with Bridges coming up in this soon. Well, the collaboration has already been done. The first thing we did was the t-shirts. Bridges contacted me through the DC Decades page, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, I had to make sure it wasn't a scam. I just couldn't believe that somewhere that I respected mm-hmm. and I frequented when I was younger in Georgetown, when they had the store in Georgetown, contacted me. So once I realized it was true and I actually talked to the guy on the phone, uh, I said yes immediately and let's do this. So he wanted to pay homage to the because they they they're in Warrington, Virginia now. Mm-hmm. 
but they still know where their bread and butter was in Washington, D.C., and they unfortunately they had lost that store in D.C., but yeah. they're trying to get back. Wow, Wisconsin Avenue? Yeah, mm-hmm. Georgetown. That used to be the high-end before you went to the outdoors. Absolutely. They sold more so the high-end fashion. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you about that. Tweed, I'll tell you more about tweed, that. suits and jackets and stuff like that. Britches, in case you all didn't know, there would be no Ralph Lauren without Britches. Yeah, definitely. I knew that, but I needed confirmation for that. Oh, it's true. 1967, Ralph Lauren worked. I got this story from... The owner of Bridges. He worked. That was his buddy. This is, they were like best friends. The owner of Bridges and Ralph Lauren. He sold ties. Ralph Lauren started selling ties. ties. Mm-hmm. Was it okay. shit? What's, what's his name? Lipschitz. Lipschitz. How do you say his Lipschitz. Lipschitz. Ralph Lipschitz. That's his name. I would have changed it to Lauren too immediately. <laughs> I would have changed it to Lauren too. And uh, he wasn't doing well. Bridges was doing well. Street like Larry mentioned, Street because they were doing high-end, high-end clothes, yeah. clothing. Yeah. No, no they were doing well. Yeah. So after Ralph couldn't get his thing going with the ties like he, he wanted to, he just bit. He needed some help, and this is what happens when you have these kinds of friends in this position. The owner of Bridges loaned Ralph Lauren two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You get him started. Bang. You see what Ralph Lauren did. Yes. Off the $200,000. He never turned back. Mm-hmm. I guess my question would be... <laughs> never would, turned would, back. Would Ralph re- reciprocate that and give him... <laughs> that I don't know. And I, you know, I'm not the type to ask a lot. I wanted to know so bad. Like, yo, you like, <laughs> figure this maybe you, out, right? Yeah. Maybe that's how Give me a corner in the polo mansion. <laughs> yeah, his, initial, his initial brands looks more so like the early Bridges stuff. Absolutely. Because they, they so, like... Leather suspenders and you know, yeah, yeah they, it, it was completely. It, it was the same. It, it was a gentleman's store. It was the same thing. Yeah, it was, it was a gentleman's store. And his so they his initial collections that. was simple. It was basically it just looked like it was the bridges. Exactly, yeah. and that's, they, what, that's what was selling. They 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 have no problem letting us know because they know we once they changed over once bridges changed over to the great outdoors mm-hmm. was when. Our age when we group. got when we got involved, and we that's where the hats from, came from, the, dress down, the rugby's. the dress down era, <laughs> and so that's what, after the t-shirts. Now we're work. That's what we're working on because I had to. I've sent him pictures, actual pictures of because pictures he's never seen of guys that were in the go go's, wearing the hat, wearing the hat, wearing the rugby's. So he's like, wow, like he knew that. Clearly we were buying the stuff to oh, sell it, yeah. but he didn't know that this was, that we had these images. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're working on now, mm-hmm. to get that. Get the images up. Get that wow. hat back and get the rugby's the way, you know, and of course that's going to be a collab this time. I, well, I, I hope <laughs> I, I hope they I hope they let you creative direct. This is what I'm hoping for. And, okay. you know, I'm, I stay on them. Because, te- you know, they're, they're busy and they, you know, they... I don't feel like they have the energy like they used to mm-hmm. as far as really wanting to get stuff out. Mm-hmm. So I stay on them. You know, I'll text just to check on them and say, okay, look, we got to get this stuff out. And I'll send them some inspiration. Because that, that <laughs> let me be honest, that, that, that Hogwarts could work. 
Yeah. Like any yeah. other thing can work. Yeah, the yeah, whole work like, can work. You know how people are. If it's the, it's the, the right actual one. design. The design speaks for itself. It's for itself. So if they got a little warthog on the chest, no one cares about that really. Mm-hmm. But if that, that shirt... Works. Hey, you know what, Larry? I wanted to ask you, man. Tell, tell us. Just take us back, because tell us about eighty three, eighty four, eighty five at Madness. Mm-hmm. How, for you guys to do the what you were doing, how many? How, how big was the team? The team. It was you, Eddie? Yeah, Eddie and Tyrone. Three guys. Yeah. I mean, we yes. were we were the initial, but <laughs> when I say us three. You got to encompass. It was a family run, so okay. all hands on deck. You know, what I'm saying all every family member played a part. We had pretty good payroll as far as all everybody got. All of them got paid. We probably didn't get no checks, but all the family who worked in there, they got checks. Never missed a check. So when 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 so we were more so, I'm especially myself. We more so in building the business as opposed to getting the checks. So. so when when does exactly does when you do you notice like hey. We're peripherating outside of just simply the DMV. When do, like tell me, tell me um, that feeling of like, yo, this guy has on a madness thing in Richmond. Oh uh, well, I think um, okay, here go here go one thing that really hit me off. It hits a lot of people when they used to have the big shows, like you was talking about the um, artists who could play DC, but every time they played DC, they were the huge. Frankie Beverly is all DC. When he come, he gonna sell out pretty much every time. Okay, but he can't do like Chuck Brown and sell out every night. But he can sell out Constitution mm-hmm. Hall every night. Patty Bell, you would say she sell out every time she come. So, so Patty Bell once one summer, she did a show at King's Dominion. King's Dominion, right? So, whole DC. Wants to go to Kingsdom because they was having these Sunday concert series. I remember that. They had Frankie Beverly down there. They had Patty LaBelle down there. They had XYZ down there. So this particular Sunday, Patty LaBelle's playing Kings Dominion. It looked like the whole world, the whole D.C. wants to go to Kings Dominion. The whole D.C. want madness. So the the shirts, well, okay, so that's the letters... Me and Ty went to Texas, and I seen them. Um, I seen the letters. I was talking to this guy with this company called um, Joy Insignia. He made embroidered letters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we was talking, and I was just looking at the letter like that. So go back. I just keep thinking about those letters. So I said, I'm gonna order some of those letters and put them on a shirt. So I called this guy. The company's in Florida. I ordered the embroidered letters. Maybe couple hundred dollars, five hundred dollars worth of letters. We take the letters, put them on the shirt. Everybody's attracted to the letters. Shirt selling, but when you buy the shirt, you want the four-inch letter, they're two dollars each. The two-inch, no, four-inch letters are four dollars, the two-inch letters are two dollars. So, everybody wants the big letters on the shirt, they want them on the front. Now they're competing. They want these letters on the front, the back. Once they put their name on the shirt, so now a $2 T-shirt if you got four inch letters, gotta have madness on it. So that's twenty eight dollars right there, so just for the madness. Then so you at got that your point, name. you guys are bespoke almost. But so you got your name, right? Yeah. So listen, I, I, so now these they start competing. We want the name front, back. A two dollar t shirt start being a hundred dollars. So now everybody's going to come King's Dominion. They gotta have a bucket and the letters on the back. They got a t shirt. So we in there from Thursday to Sunday. Printing like me. Print, but you got guys coming in. Uh, yeah, 
man, we're getting all those shirts over there. The guy you know, ordered 100 shirts. 100 shirts times $100 plus. It's like 10 racks. <laughs> yes, it is. So this guy might say, well, man, give, give me 200 of them. So they're competing. Oh, no, most definitely. So this guy said, well, they getting 100. Man, give us 200. We want it on the front. We want it on the back. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You put on the sleeve. I want a $150, $250 shirt. What, what I got to do to get it on there? You stack it up. So, so we go to the show, the whole King's Dominion. The whole King's Dominion got mad. We took the peak presses to King's Dominion. Got about four, five, six rooms in King's Court. We down there, we done moved the shop to the King's Court. Because, oh, dog. Because we done, we done service everybody down there. But now, so now all, y'all mobile. But now, but, yeah. but now Richmond, Richmond is, is there in the park. And Richmond is seeing this. And Richmond's like, where, where, where can we get that? So now you got all these guys from Richmond coming to the hotel in the King's Court. So we got guys set up by the pool with with the table selling shirts. Guys in the room printing shirts as fast as they could print them and run them down to the pool. They out there selling the shirts. Man, we flooded the whole park. Man. I, mean, I, I, I got to ask you the hard question. At at Madness's height, mm-hmm. what would you believe your estimated worth was at that time? At the height? Mm. And if you can't give the estimated worth, give us your largest take for a month. For one month? One month you your lo- you of your whole of your of your whole your whole history, the largest take you ever had in a month. Estimated work. I'm gonna tell you this story right here. I had a friend, I had a friend from Turkey. So my friend from Turkey, he invited me to go to Istanbul with him. So I went to Istanbul with him. And me and Ty, me and Ty went to Istanbul. So we go to Istanbul. Pause. Dog, you have to be the most interesting human being of all time. That tequila guy got nothing on you. Mm-hmm. Continue. So me and Ty, we go to Istanbul. So my friend, he used to be a tailor for this guy who's like the Oscar de la Renta of Turkey. He's a big fashion guy. Got a major fashion house who sold beaded dresses and uh, women's apparel, but on the high end. So when we go there... The first couple of nights, the rest of these restaurants opened up. Right. So this one restaurant opened up in Ankara. We took a plane to this restaurant for it to open, but he's the guest. That's, we got one big table, and they bring us all the food that the restaurant is going to prepare and serve. But this is not the open. It's like maybe a soft opening or something. And if he, don't, if he say it ain't right, then the restaurant don't open. You got all the press over there, all the media, all these magazines, and they got all these cameras, and we eating, and they just waiting for him to say, like, or him to say, like, so this one particular time, he, he didn't give the people the thumbs up. So the cameras never clicked off. But there's been times where he said, yeah, this is great, the food is good. The, the next day, you're in all the magazines, you're on the news at night. All this stuff, man. His name was Fike Bay Samyaz. He was an incredible man. Like he's about when I met him, he was in the sixties, and he had a young wife from uh Brussels named Bilgen. She was like thirty-four. Right. And he had a teenage son, Mete. Mete was maybe fourteen or fifteen. 
loved the basketball. So me and him in the evening, we would go to the club teams, play the basketball and everything. So he was, Mr. Samuels was telling me, Fight Bay was saying, like, I need something for my wife and son to do. Larry, I'm really interested in what you guys doing in America. You know, the clothes, we could set up a manufacturing opportunity. So we set up a major manufacturing on a handshake. Built a big factory, started out with 200 people sewing, just off the handshake. No, no, okay. So that's the how that's how the store, the company really exploded, exploded, exceeded because we were I, I, manufacturing I, 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 I our I need own product. But I need a number, dog. Your largest month in madness history. You could ballpark it. Just, just, to, just so, just so everyone can understand the magnitude of what you guys were accomplishing. Average day better than ten grand. Every day, I would say. Ten grand a day, 30 Every day. days. Every day. Better than that on the average. The weekend's going to be probably twice that. So you're looking at maybe three fifty four. I don't know. I really can't because I never stopped to think about it. But I know average day. Just to day, be clear. Cause average I, day is better than I, I, I went to really good schools. Yeah. So we're talking. Well, the math is good. Yeah, math numbers. Is good. numbers. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let people add that up on their own. They can add that. I'm not going to add that up for you. The numbers don't lie. Brother, can I shake your hand? Well done. Thank you, Adam. Well done. Appreciate you. And I want to do a podcast with you, the most interesting man <laughs> alive. I'm going to figure that out. I've never, your, the, 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 the dots that connect to you is insane. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Two questions. Yes. And I'm going to stop. I got questions for you too. Mm-hmm. You guys decided never to sell the name. 90% of everybody who's gone into fashion has sold it, sold it at its height. Fat Farms, Sean John, FUBU, Changing Hands, yeah. uh, 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 Coogee. Every, every, everybody's willing at the high, like, yo, cash out. Our, um, our, our um, gene rep, our gene rep, like, started early in the game, was a kid named Tony Shellman. You remember Tony Shellman? Slightly, but continue. Tony Shellman started um, Mecca and the Nietzsche. Okay. So his, but he was our G. Him and Phil, and Phil Pabone. Phil Pabone. So Phil used to bring him down. Me and Phil was cool through Steve Solomon. So they, they used to come, Phil used to bring, he, when he first brought Tony, he was always our gene rep. But once he started his line, Phil, he came with Phil to the store. And they wanted to get on his, his brand, I think it might have been Mecca at the time, on BET. So a lot of the BET people we we grew up where we knew, so we were able to take them to the BET and get them on Donnie Simpson, get them on a couple of other little shows where they with Chris uh, Chris, uh, Chris Thomas with Chris, Chris Thomas, Thomas with the on Rap City with the Rap City Mayor. We got mm-hmm. him on that joint, got his brand. But man, him used to always talk, and his model starting out was, you know, blow it up, sell it, go to the next, blah 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 blah. But we never had that because we was family owned, this and that, and. We was doing so well that we didn't think we really needed to sell. But later on, what I did was a collaboration or a partnership with my Japanese business partners. You used to see me with my Japanese guys. He brought, all the time. You used to bring them around all, all the, the time. time. So we did our Japanese thing pretty much on, kind of on that model a little bit, where we took the madness and those guys took it over there and did an incredible thing with it and just. Blew us up in Japan heavily. So madness today. Where, tell me where you are and where you guys are headed, and and what you'd like to see for madness in the future. Clearly, you're a staple 
uh, in the city. Everyone in the city knows it and respects it. Mm-hmm. What's next for the brand that started all the brands? Right. Is there a next for you guys, or do you guys just sit on that throne? No, I think I think it's a next. It's a growth. Um, a lot of the things that we, you know, like I said, we were only talking about the fashion, but back then, our model was like Todd did the boxing. Our boxing portfolio was really big. We, Tank Davis, we did his first four or five fights. Sean Bay Mitchell, Mark Tushab Johnson, Daryl Coley, uh, Keith Holmes, William Joppy, all those were world champions that we started their careers, really, even Ready Bo with Rock Newman. Mm. We started all their careers with the boxing. Then I did the basketball. So all our David Butler won the national championship with UNLV. That's our family member. Uh, even now with Kevin and all those guys, mm-hmm. Michael Beasley, we did, you know, I did the sports. So we was a sports and entertainment, not just the fashion. And we were definitely heavily invested in the sports, especially the boxing. Mm. You know, so this, we did. This is homegrown where we take an opportunity to take a deep dive into DC culture, past, present, and future. And speaking of the future, I'm here with uh, Larry from Madness, which is, it's a, he he has a Bible that says, I love you, JC, on the inside. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. I am sure you have a Bible with Jesus Christ's autograph. I believe it. <laughs> I'm talking to Larry from the Mad, Madness Shop. Madness Shop. And I'm talking to my friend Mustafa from DC Decades. Again, please, if you get an opportunity, go on Instagram, follow him immediately at DC Decades on Instagram. We were speaking to Larry about the future. And uh, to be honest, brother, you you are, I believe, D.C.'s bright future. There's some amazing places like the museum. Mm-hmm. I think they do a great job. Mm-hmm. I think you do a great job. What I've been able to watch you do is that you're building some really substantial relationships mm-hmm. within, you know, there's the great chasm that is D.C. culture. Absolutely. So please tell me about the future of D.C. decades. Where do, you, where do you see it going and where is the trajectory of where you want it to go? Okay, so DZ Decades is actually the Instagram page where we, we I do the unique our unique history of the District of Columbia past, present, and future. Um, Decades Free Nostalgia is the name of the brand which I'm wearing my shirt, and inspired, of course, by Larry and the Madness Crew. Um, we developed. Decades Free Nostalgia as a someone that has contacted some of these brands. Speaking of future, some don't answer. Some will give a straight no, mm. or some will put me on hope. Mm. So that leaves me hope because I'm not one to quit. Okay. So while I was doing that. I said, you know what? Because I started Decades Free Nostalgia out as a vintage shop. It was called Decades Vintage Shop, and that was my first page on Instagram. And what I did was I found a plug overseas that could get me what I needed as far as the old school mm-hmm. Brands because, and items. Because I'm going to say you're ahead of your time because all of them are resurfacing. Absolutely. Even ones that we don't want, like Pony Absolutely. is resurfacing. Uh, if you go around, there's a lot of people 
rediscovering Sergio mm-hmm. Tacchini. Yeah, and it's, it's and what I, how I started the vintage shop out. I had to do something that would attract my demographic, which is DC. Mm-hmm. So my Asics Gold Tigers. We, we discussed those outside. <laughs> well, let, knew- let me describe that to everybody. If, <laughs> okay. if, if you're not from D.C., you don't understand the significance of this sneaker. In 1989, 90, and 91, it is an Asics sneaker that is not even really gold. It's kind of like an ale-ish, ale-like mustard with the with the almost like a translucent blue. And the truth is, everyone wore it with the with a yellow. Moss brown sweatsuit, which it didn't Absolutely. actually match. It didn't right. match it, directly, but you kind of <laughs> got a pass for it. But if you're from DC, message. if you're from DC from a particular era, that's exactly what it, it has is. Become a DC collector's item, and I knew a guy overseas that could get them for me. Oh my god! So now let me tell you what happened. I knew as soon as I posted, it went haywire, and that that just lifted the vintage shop. It took it to another level. Oh, this guy is the only one in DC that can get the because they. I'll tell you because my. I'm in partnership with Prince and Princess as well as my 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 line is in the store. I, I, that, that, in Georgetown, that I know, but let me tell you something. Let me, let me say this. I gotta let you talk, but I gotta say this. Prince and Princess have held up the flag of original DC fashion so Great high people. for people. so long. Unrelentingly, great people. They have not forgotten. They love us. They, they haven't forgotten us. at all. <laughs> and you can still go in there and talk them they, down. They, they, they love it. The, and you can still talk just, them down. That's the fun of it. For those who don't know, Prince and Princess is a uh, fashion store in Georgetown, mm-hmm. DC, that has every sneaker that mattered and every sweatsuit, sweatsuit that really mattered. T-shirts. Every mm-hmm. t-shirt that. Uh, when I say mattered, <laughs> that means it was a staple. It meant something like, I'm not going to pretend like certain things we can all find in everyone's collection, Absolutely. a white polo tee. Great. It's but that's, but what they got in there yeah. speaks to a particular demographic <laughs> that and knows. And it's not going anywhere. So what happened, Prince and Princess Mama, what we call us leader, one of the owners, and uh, Parvis, they'll tell people, they've been telling people for years because they have one of these on the wall, a dirty, very dirty one. It's busted. And no, and no back it's on the wall. So they'll keep telling people, we got some more coming, we got some coming. And knowing, Ain't they know they're not coming. Ain't nothing. But people, they, they want them so bad that they would still check in. They would still have this hope. So when I came and was able to get. You got a full size run for them? Yeah. It, it, COVID. That's another story because COVID ruined me for these. But that's another story. Oh, you going to get a full size run? Yeah, I, I, I'm supposed to get another one. And I already did. I sold out. You, you know, gave them a kidney. I, <laughs> the guy had them. See, the, in overseas, it's these wealthy guys. Think about all the clothes that are produced. Right. All, the, all those Sergios from back then. and They're they, all in a warehouse somewhere? Wow, you gave me the look just, my mother gave me. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me my mother's look. Like, I... I Say, Mom, my room's clean. Like, yeah, I just left these room, guys man. overseas, Australia, Netherlands. They have these <laughs> warehouses. They have these big warehouses, and 
they have them in there. Like, you, you, <coughs> you don't know if the company actually, they made deals with the companies or whatever, they, or they just gave them to them. You just so, never know. So but how they are have you them. meeting them? Like, just like, like a cold call? This was a, how I got my contact was through <coughs> a guy, another guy from Instagram. If you use Instagram correctly, it will serve you, you well. You said nothing but the truth. Yeah, is it, we we became friends. Um, he he does the Macopolis page, and it's, it's on. It's, it's I know based, that it's, Me- it's Me- New Me- York based. I, I would say Macopolis, yeah, but yeah, I but, call it Macopolis. <laughs> it's New York based, but he I helped him out. He was doing a segment on uh, DC about three weeks, mm-hmm. and I had. I read read some things. He writes very well, tells a good story, <clears throat> but he just had some of the information wasn't correct. So I sent him a message and mm-hmm. sent him some pictures and sent him a story behind the pictures. Mm-hmm. He was so grateful. He was so grateful. He's in L.A. He invited me out to L.A. We hit it off. He was so grateful. And he gave me his plug, gave me his overseas plug. But he Sheesh. he doesn't he does the same thing, but he does it for what the, the New York the New people want. So he's so, finding vintage Avarex yeah. and so all that. I took that and said, Well, you know what? Let me send these guys what we used to wear. Mm-hmm. And the guy had him. He had these. My God. He didn't even know what he had at first. He just knew he had them. That's like that's, that's that's like yelling out. There's a virgin in Vegas. Yeah. So it was on, it was on, and each time I posted a pair, I just and I could put whatever number I wanted on because they're a collector's item, pretty much. So I would get a bit, you know, and I. It's just in my heart, I'm not that kind of person. And I'm not greedy, but I put a number on them to make it. Make me happy, so you know. I know I could have asked for more for for some of them, but I just I wanted I actually wanted the homies to have them, and I wanted to be able for them to be able to say, "Yeah, I got a pair." Mustafa got me those. Well, God, well, God, well, first of all, first of all, this conversation could go on for. Of course, for uh, uh, this you know, this is a masterclass. This is. Howard should offer you two guys as a masterclass. But what I want to do here, mm-hmm. I do want to wrap this up quickly, okay. but I want to extend an invite to possibly do a second part of this. Absolutely. I don't have a date and time, but I just want to bring I just want to make sure I'm able to bring you guys back together. I also would like to do this because I like to throw energy in the room. I would love to see a decades in madness collaboration. I would love it as well. I think <laughs> And I and I, and I, I I would what I'd like to do for it in my in my humble I want you guys to do one for this podcast. There needs we, we, I want to commemorate this podcast with okay. a T-shirt or a hoodie. This is homegrown, designed by both of you guys. Okay, because you guys are the first people to believe in what we're doing, and we're so beautiful to extend yourself simply not to just come, but lend us your hearts and your information. So I love you guys for that. Thank you. I promise you this story is never ending. We're going to continue it. But of course, we're dealing with time. So this is only the first episode of many where we're going to discuss all things D.C. I'm talking politics, fashion, culture, music. But this is Black Music Month. So we wanted to take an opportunity to take Go-Go and build off of it. The Go-Go conversations happened a million times. We can start there, but we wanted to springboard off that early because Go-Go culture and the fashion culture, they run tandem. They're twins. Mm -hmm. So we had an opportunity to discuss this. I can't wait to dig deeper. And you, sir, 
are by far the most interesting human being ever on the planet Earth, Larry. Again, this is Homegrown mm-hmm. with Mustafa, your truly DJ Iron, and Larry from The Madness Shop. Thank you for listening, and I promise you, more is to come and much better. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Man, Thank you, That was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I just said, I'm going to get louder, baby, so we make sure we're going to turn you down in the mix. Now, I put your Gucci watch on, synchronize your time, and let's pop. Time and let's run.